You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I'm very excited to continue the tiger talk. So right now, tigers are a big talk, and I have an expert with us today that is going to be talking about all things tigers, both in accredited zoos and research about them in the wild. So I have with me today Emily, who is the Director of Research from the Proustian Project, which is a nonprofit that has a mission to save tigers in the wild using their vocal communications. So the sounds they make, which we'll be learning all about that today. They make a lot of different noises. And the Proustian Project seeks to learn what makes a tiger call unique. And the overall goal is to use this non-invasive research or acoustic monitoring to learn how to protect them in their natural habitat. And as most people have learned the past couple of weeks with the episode series on Netflix, The Tiger King, which Emily will be definitely talking about her opinion about that. So uh, look forward to hearing about that. But for those of you that aren't familiar, tigers are in crisis in the wild. Their numbers are extremely endangered. And so Emily's going to be talking a lot about that today and a lot about what the Proustian Project does to help increase the wild population of tigers. So hello, Emily. Thank you for being here today. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Angie. I'm so excited to be here. I know. Well, we've had a lot of back and forth communication because the past couple of weeks have been a little hectic at both of our workplaces and in our lives with uh, the coronavirus going around. And so I just really appreciate you figuring out your schedule uh, to be here today to talk all things tigers. Absolutely. Right back at you. It has been a little bit nuts. <laughs> yes. But obviously when you love and care and conserve wildlife, uh, we figured out how to connect, didn't we? We did. We'll make it happen. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I'm so excited to talk today. But before we get too much into what the Proustian Project is and what it does, I want to know a little background about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am from the Midwest. I'm originally from Topeka, Kansas. And um, my love for wildlife started early. Um, my family always brought me to the zoo. They did one of those adoption things. My grandmother would always buy, um, like, adopt for me one of the Asian elephants that lived at Topeka Zoo that eventually, after volunteering there, getting some education, I ended up working with some and so I started my love um, for animals in zoos um, and then went through college and continued to work through animals with animals from there, anything from uh, exotics to domestics to local wildlife. So I just love it all. <laughs> 
I feel you. I know. And that's kind of leads me into my next question, which is probably super unfair. But do you have <laughs> a favorite animal or a favorite animal interaction that you could share with us? Oh, that's completely unfair. <laughs> there are so many. <laughs> I know. So, I know. Um, so I don't even know. So my favorite one from like being a kid um, was my parents would bring me to SeaWorld when I was little and they, um, let me do one of those interactions and I got to do an interaction with a beluga whale. And I still remember that whale's name is Martha. I don't know if that's just her like public name or what, but like she was the coolest, um, to, when I was at K-State, I got to work um, out on Conza Prairie with the bison, which was just so much fun. And I was never um, in our ornithology department, but I had some friends who were. So one night we got to go out to Conza and American woodcocks, which are just this fun little bird who, um, if you spend much time on the Internet, you've probably seen a video of them walking with some music playing over the top because they kind of bob their head back and forth and their whole body moves like opposite. And so you can pretty much put any music over the top and it looks like they're dancing along to it. That sounds like (laughs) the next TikTok video. Oh, for sure. And so um, they are just the coolest, weirdest little birds and they will fly. They will start in one spot on the prairie and fly straight up in the air until you can't see them anymore. And then they kind of spiral their way back down and they'll end up landing in that exact same spot again. But as they spiral their way back down, their wings go through the air in a certain way that it sounds like this high pitched like whistle. So um, it's called like the woodcock air dance, but you can like kind of hide down. Like I wouldn't recommend going and finding woodcocks, but if you're with someone who's trained, you can hide down in the prairie in the um, tall grass and get you can get pretty close to them they'll fly off go up and as they start their descent you can like move near them so like a foot or two away you don't want to be like where they're going to land but a two or foot or two away and you can just lay there and if you're very still they'll land in that same spot right next to you so you can kind of watch them until they go and do their next dance so that's a pretty cool experience So incredible. And this is, this is why I love the Midwest. I grew up in the Midwest too. And I don't think I have a story quite as gnarly as that. Uh, but that's how we entertain ourselves. I mean, the nature was for sure my entertainment for making like milkweed beds and just all sorts oh, yeah. of, all sorts of weird outdoors, fun, naturey stuff. And so I, I have to hope that this younger generation is still doing things like that and not just always on devices because yeah, getting out there and hanging out with woodcocks or we used to, we used to like look for bats at nighttime where we'd like throw rocks yeah. up in the air so they would like swoop down mm-hmm. and you could see them. Uh, it's probably not like a, a great thing that I'm recommending on the podcast, but these were the outdoor right. weird kid high school or teenager things that we did just to, to be outside and be in nature and be learning and, and seeing. Uh, oh, for sure. All, all that there is. But I'll tell you what, I, I'm not as familiar with the woodcock. And I think that Chris and I have to cover that on the podcast. Like, Oh, they are the coolest. Me? I highly yeah. recommend it. <laughs> okay, cool. No, no, uh, we'll, we'll do that one. I'm going to push that one to the front because that's just <laughs> birds. We don't cover enough birds on the podcast to begin with because I don't know why, uh, but they have some of the, the funnest behaviors. So, Oh, <laughs> for sure. Awesome. And they're just so weird. So highly recommend <laughs> woodcock. Yeah. Well, and because we're talking tigers, I do have to kind of put a caveat on the question and see if you have a tiger story or an interaction about a, a tiger or a big cat that you could share. With oh, us. for sure. So if we're talking animals I've worked with, I have listened to some of your podcasts and I know um, you are a big cat and uh, hoofstock and hippo family, um, which yes. hits close to home because <laughs> my first keeper job was in a... Um, barn that house elephants giraffe and hippo um and then the other area we worked in was big cats so i love all of it so um there's a giraffe named hope that i'm just like absolutely in love with who lives at topeka zoo kempty is a snow leopard who's just like the sweetest cat that's ever existed who currently lives at louisville zoo and it just has the best home there and hands down my favorite tiger is named malik that i worked with he's just the coolest cat and he um he was born at Omaha Zoo he's a Malayan tiger and I'm 
that weird person that has a favorite tiger family line. Um, and so I love it. Taking it to the next level. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. So, um, I have a fun story with him. Um, my was the name of his mom, um, who lived up at Omaha zoo for the majority of her life. If you've ever visited Omaha zoo and saw three legged Malayan tiger, that was her. Um, she was injured in a poacher trap was deemed non-releasable and then found a home at Omaha and then became the best mom to uh, several groups of cubs. And when I was little, well, probably early high school, I went to visit Omaha Zoo with my parents. And there was these two cute little cubs hanging out with my, not that I knew who she was at that point. And I took some pictures of them and posted them on my Facebook, as you do. And um, I was going back through those photos probably five or six years ago, now that I'm a lot more familiar with the uh well for one i was working with malik at that point and his brother hakeem and i was going back through those photos and realized those markings looked crazy familiar on those cubs and it was them when they were just a few weeks old i got to see them and then i ended up working with them which is pretty stinking cool so wow full he's pretty special to me and my was a wonderful wonderful cat so (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, (laughs) you've had such a great time being able to experience, like you said, different like family members and full, full circle of a lot of these tigers, um, under human care. But can you give us a little bit of a background on what is happening with tigers in the wild as far as what their numbers look like and what has been happening to their populations recently? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't think it's a surprise to any of us that we know that historic tiger numbers have dropped. We're looking at just like a century ago, we had more than 100,000 tigers in the Asia area alone. That's not counting any of the tigers that were over in like East Asia, like Turkey. And so we have our nine subspecies. Um or two, depending on who you're talking to. Um, yeah, the genetics change a lot, or I sometimes do the number six thrown out. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, uh, the genetics, I mean, it's a good and a bad thing to, to uh, be able to look at deep into the genetics. But For sure. Um, so yeah, those numbers have dropped over the last century. But on a positive note, we have seen an increase in the last four to five years, specifically with Bengal tiger numbers, they have increased. The thought now is there's around 3,900 in the wild, which um, before it was closer to 3,000 upper 2,000s. I think a lot of that comes from, for one, people just being more conscious of how their actions affect these populations in the wild realizing that there is a real importance um, to making sure we maintain good numbers. And also just the realization that is sometimes I think when we say an animal's gone extinct, we think that that was centuries ago or that's completely disconnected from us. Most recently, the Javan tiger went extinct and that was in the 1980s. And so for a lot of us, we were alive then. So, right. Yeah. It's pretty recent. So extinction is a very real thing. And we have a chance to reverse it for most of these subspecies, if not all. So if we work together and keep, we're mindful of how our actions affect, even our actions like here in the Midwest will affect tiger populations and on the other side of the world, then we can really still make a difference. Exactly. No, very, very well said. I, I think it is important to always keep in, in our forefront that these tigers that live in the wild need us here in the, in North America or South America or whatever continent you mm-hmm. live in to, to make steps towards helping save them. And even if it's just education, educating yourself and your family, um, because there's a lot we can do in, um, uh, and a fellow, interviewee that I had on the podcast named Sinarto, Dr. Sinarto. Mm-hmm. He always says that if you save tigers, you save yourself. Oh, I love and that. I think, yeah. I think it's really true because it just goes to show, like you said, it, it's going to take all of us working together. And uh, and then if we do it, it'll happen. And right. it's very home, that that's hitting close to home these past couple of weeks too, is where we have to all work together as a global community in order to 
let the good fight the evil, right? Um, right. Things like that. And so, yes. And since we touched on tigers in the wild, uh, I, I have to ask your opinion about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's coming. It's all the talk, uh, about the tiger king. I, Chris and I have shared our opinions on a podcast, uh, trying to use scientific evidence and some data like that, but it's hard when it's such a, an opinion piece to, to look at it <laughs> from an evidence, evidence-based point of view. But since you obviously are at the, the heartbeat of both tigers, uh, living under human care in accredited facilities, but then also with tigers in the wild, what is your take on this? Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. I think the main take a home, take a home for people who are watching Tiger King is think about how your actions and your dollar, like what that really says and what that is um, supporting. So obviously there are some things in here that we certainly don't love, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but we can, we can really just use our actions to say what we will and won't support. So when you're looking at whether or not you want to visit a facility, do some research on that facility beforehand, really see if that's some place you would like to support and just think about how some interactions that you're going to have might affect the animals. So you really just want to do what's best for those animals, right? So um, if you're provided the opportunity to take a picture with a tiger cub, that might not be the best situation for that animal. And even though that is a pretty cool experience for you, is that what's best for the tiger cub? Is that mean that that tiger cub is in the best situation? Cause I bet it would be a little bit happier with mom. And I, we could probably dedicate a whole, a whole nother podcast to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it really, it, it really is something, but I think the thing to keep in mind is that there needs to be more focus on tiger welfare, obviously in North America or wherever, if they're not in the wild um, and to make sure that your dollar is supporting accredited facilities or places that have good welfare. And with just a little bit of research, you can uh, usually tell uh, from a, from a website or from even just going to the facility or being out, standing outside the facility or asking a couple questions and, and knowing that educating yourself is very empowering and it will help the animals in the wild in the long run. And of course, like you said, those tiger cubs, it probably would way weather be with mom and don't want to be petted or ripped away from mom. And so, uh, yeah, I've, uh, the more I've been thinking about the tiger king, I think it's a little bit more of a, a mockumentary than like a mm. documentary. So I think you just have to know the, the main goal behind it and that, uh, I wasn't about tiger conservation. In fact, uh, it was like the last five <laughs> seconds of the whole series that had really anything to do with about what we're talking about today. But right. Hope, I don't know about yours, but my hope is that it does get sometimes that shock and awe does get the conversation going, which I don't know about your social media feeds, but it's got a lot of people that probably weren't talking about tigers talking about tigers. And hopefully, just hope, my hope is, uh, that the seven hours that you spend binge watching the series, that you'll spend one hour, two hours learning about tigers in the wild or your local accredited zoo or sanctuary, uh, and helping, helping them with the good fight of saving these guys in the wild. I know that's, that's why I, I promise minimally seven <laughs> hours <laughs> dedicated to tiger conservation. So Emily, you're helping me check that off today. <laughs> I'm super excited to learn about what you guys are doing for tigers in the wild. So can you give me a little background about the Proustin project and what it is that you guys do in your mission. So um, we started back in 2012 when our executive director, Courtney Dunn, was interning at um, the National Tiger Sanctuary in Branson, Missouri. And as she was walking between these exhibits, she noticed what all keepers tend to notice at some point during their career, which is they heard one of their 
animals under their care vocalizing. And as she was walking, she was like, oh, that's a that's this cat. And she started thinking about it and was like, what implication does that have as a conservation point? So there are several different programs that do look at vocalizations of different species, such as we have Frog Watch, which is an AZA program that uses citizen science to go out and listen for frog calls. Um, there's research with whales and dolphins and looking at their vocalizations. There's research with elephants, looking at their vocalizations and how far their vocalizations can travel. Um, but there really isn't anything with big cats. And so that is what Courtney decided to dedicate her master's program with two, which was looking at um, Bengal tigers, primarily in sanctuaries um, for this first study, or generics, we should say. When you don't know the history of a tiger, it's hard to say whether or not they're Bengal. So um, they very well could have been sort some sort of mix. Most of them were rescues from uh, home situations <laughs> where someone decided to get a tiger and then keep it as a pet and realized fairly quickly that this wasn't a good fit. And so they ended up finding great homes with those sanctuaries. And so what she looked at in that first study was primarily what is the difference in a vocalization between a male and a female? And can you tell a male and a female apart? And the answer is absolutely. <laughs> um, cool. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> we expected to have a little bit more trouble telling them apart, but truly like their vocal ranges are completely different. Um, wow. Male tigers yeah. really have a much uh, lower voice so to say, and females have higher. Also, males tend to be a little bit more brief with their vocalizations. We were looking primarily at long calls, which is a series of bouts or roars that kind of grow over time and then will fade off again. They usually last about 20 seconds. Um, mm -hmm. tw but males tend to be around 18 seconds, whereas females go on for a little bit longer. They're 24 to 25 seconds. So not only are female voices a little bit higher, but they also are a little bit more talkative. So, um, wow. hmm, that doesn't sound like my house at all. I mean, no. my husband's a great <laughs> communicator. He goes on and on and on about his feelings. <laughs> Not. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that's so, so interesting. See, that's the thing. Save tigers and you save yourself. You can learn a lot about yourself. Uh, these animals are like, they're almost like looking into a mirror sometimes. I, I just love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, this idea is formed and you're getting data back. That's really cool. How did the Proustian project evolve from there? Sure. So after seeing the initial data, that just showed us that if we dug deeper, we know we can find out more. Um, so we decided to apply to be a, a 501c3 nonprofit, went through that process, which we gained that um, in 2014. And then from there, we just started reaching out to zoos and recording any and all tigers that we could. So this has been several years of just sending recorders to zoos, recording as many individuals as they have, sometimes several times. Um, for example, with Tulsa Zoo, uh, we recorded their female and male and then we recorded uh their female once she had cubs and the cubs were young and we went back and recorded when those cubs were in the process of weaning and got through with weaning and how those vocalizations changed and then some of those cubs we've also recorded since they've moved to new facilities so some of these animals we've really gotten their entire life so far and how their vocalizations have changed and so what we're looking at is age-specific vocalizations, how we might be able to determine age from the vocalization itself. We're looking at gender, of course. We're continuing to look at that. Um, if there's any health-related uh, indicators that we might be able to see through vocalizations, as well as family lines. So that's really how I started to really love that one certain family line is as I dug deeper into the Malayan tigers that we have here in the United States and 
well, and Canada, we have researched at one AZA accredited zoo up in Canada. Um, as we've looked at these family lines, um, we've really just dug into them and gotten very familiar. So, um, one thing, just like I know during your tiger episode, you spoke about, um, how tigers have unique stripes and they have their stripes go all the way down to their skin. Um, just like they have those unique stripes and unique patterns, just like we have a fingerprint, each tiger also has a unique voice. And so you really can tell each individual based off their vocalization. And if you look at a spectrogram, which is a visual representation of a vocalization, you can actually see individual traits for each individual. And it's kind of fun because they kind of do look like tiger stripes. So, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And Emily, how do you collect the vocalizations? Is it just like a recorder or what? Can you walk me through that process a little bit? Yeah. So we use two different types of recorders. Um, one is a song meter, which is really popular recording device with ornithologists um, studying birds in their vocalizations. And then um, we also use audio moth, which is just this little recorder. It's a newer tool in the world of audio recordings. Um, and we basically just set them on the outside of the exhibit. So what we instruct the keepers to do is if they're outside, if their tiger is outside, put the recorder outside. If the tiger's inside and they're holding, put it inside. If the tiger has access either way, just put the recorder outside. The fun thing about tigers is they're not that quiet typically. <laughs> so we can hear their vocalizations really whichever place they are. The by far the funniest thing that we did not think about when we first started recording is these recorders do run for 24 hours at a time. We'll record a tiger for three days in a row nonstop. And the keepers who day one don't remember that they set out a recorder and they'll come into holding and be like, hey, honey, how are you doing today? Did you sleep well? And then you'll just hear like their voice change. Aww. And then they'll just go back to just training, just working with their animal where they oh, realize, yeah. oh, yeah, I'm being recorded. <laughs> I, uh, I I teach an animal uh, behavior class, but and also one that specializes in uh, horse behavior. And I have a whole PowerPoint that says it's okay to talk to your horse. Like you should actually, <laughs> uh, that way they don't get spooked. They know your voice. They're very smart and they understand different voices and different pitches and different tones. Some of the research uh, from the equine world is starting to demonstrate some of that. So all those years we were talking to the zoo animals or your pets at home. Mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. my dad. I just, I think actually as a kid, audio recorded him talking to one of our dogs because I'd never heard such sweet baby talk in my life. I'm like, he doesn't talk to us like that. Like <laughs> the dog is definitely his favorite. So I think it's a uh, very healthy and very normal to talk to your animals. Uh, but that is very funny. I, I bet you have some, uh, just some cute little things that they don't even know that were on, uh, on tape. Absolutely. And don't worry if you're one of those keepers listening, it's our secret. <laughs> we won't do anything with it. I won't tell anyone what you said to the tiger, but. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was so, but it also, I think it gives you a good insight to, uh, behind the, the scenes view of just how much the zoo staff, the zookeepers, zookeepers at these accredited facilities that have been well-trained, uh, just how much love and dedication they put into their animals. And that's, and for me, that's just become even more obvious in the past month or so watching a lot of my uh, zookeeping staff stay longer hours, work different weird shifts to help with, uh, to help make things as smooth as normal at the zoo during this pandemic. So kudos to all the animal keepers out there um, at, because we know you guys are just doing amazing work caring, caring for your animals and, so, and it's okay oh, if you talk cute yes. to them. <laughs> Emily <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Keep it up. <laughs> yeah. And so along the way, you've mentioned several uh, different facilities that you've worked with. As the Proustine Project evolved in this nonprofit, two questions. How did your mission evolve and how, and how did your partnerships evolve? Sure. Um, so our partnerships really we had to refine exactly what species we were wanting or subspecies rather we were wanting to look at. And 
decide where to put our focus with um, what individuals we really want to research and what would be the most valuable recording in captive settings as we look to move to in the field. And mm-hmm. so we really found that the best data we could get were with the animals who were housed at facilities who participated with SSP programs, which is a species survival plan, especially as we were looking at these family lines, because if you don't know the history behind this tiger, that makes it really hard to then use that vocalization. So um, in our actual research, so we decided to partner with those facilities who are part of SSPs, which if you don't know what an SSP is, a, C- a species survival plan looks at the genetics of every animal within a certain within a certain species or subspecies and kind of plays matchmaker for the best pairs um for the best um genetic viability. So you're really looking for just the all-star pairs that you can put together, make sure that we're doing healthy breeding, um, which this is one of the things when you're looking at should I visit a facility or not, look to see what individuals they're breeding together. Are they completely unrelated or are they breeding siblings? Like I know you guys have talked about um, white tigers on here before and how they're just ultimately a genetic mutation. And so are people breeding for white tigers? That might not be the facility you want to go to. Um, so we tried to steer away, away from those guys, stick with the SSP, use those facilities as the facilities we wanted to reach out with and build partnerships with. So we've been really lucky. Um, it's really cool. And I think this project really speaks to how passionate keepers are because we're not tied to one specific facility or one specific uh, university. Most of our support and funding comes from AZAC groups, which is American Association of Zookeeper groups, which oh, are... yeah. Heck I'm yeah. Here, girl. yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing my AZAC shirt right now. <laughs> but... Awesome. uh uh, yeah, there are these little groups of zookeepers who volunteer to get together and raise money for great organizations and great conservation projects. Everything from bowling for rhinos, which raises money for rhino conservation, to trees for you and me, which replants trees around the world. AZAC has also come together to support us and raise money for our own uh, tiger conservation and helping us get into the field get that really good quality data. And I know um, a lot of zookeepers have really gone to bat with us going to their directors and their conservation team saying, Hey, you guys should support this group. (laughs) Um, So thank you (laughs) to everyone who's done that because uh, without you guys, we wouldn't be where we are. So there you go. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Like I said, we love our zookeepers, right? Heck yeah. And so You've been able for years now to collect different uh, vocalizations of different sexes, different ages from, as you mentioned, across a multitude of facilities. And so how does that data then translate to tigers in the wild and what you're doing for for that? Absolutely. So what we're hoping um, is that this can be used as a tool to supplement current camera trap setups. Um, so right now there's a very specific season that um, you're able to using um, in this case, I'm going to talk about like uh, tropical species. You really have just a certain time frame of the year that you're able to use camera traps, not the rainy season. You need that dry season. So just so you can get a clear shot um, otherwise there's so much foliage, there's so much rain, you're not going to be able to get clear photos and to get a good census on your tigers, you really need that perfect side shot. And so our hope is that this will become first a supplement to camera traps. And then as we become or have a ba- better data set, it'll become a standalone census method where Tiger vocalizations travel for miles at a time. Um, a long call, um, which is what we were looking at for most of our study, can travel for like upwards of miles, even in dense forests. So we're looking wow. at, yeah, like, I mean, you're not going to hear it like 
they're standing next to you miles away, but you can pick up a slight call. So we're trying to find out if you can, you like what distance is a viable distance um, to be from a tiger to be able to tell that individual. And then if we set our recorders up in a grid pattern, how well we'll be able to locate what population is in this corner of like this park, what population is in this section? Do we have a male over here? Is it a female? Is it a female with cubs? Like we're trying to just get a better map for where our animals are. So hopefully we can place camera traps a little bit more, a little bit better and also just get a more accurate census. We are hoping that potentially we just can find some more individuals if we have a little bit better uh, census tools. Yeah. And like you said, be able to track them for more times out of the year. I remember with my interview with Dr. Sonarto in Sumatra, his team to check the camera traps uh, when they hike into the jungles, it's like a 14 day hike. Oh yeah. It's insane. I mean, it's just these conservation heroes that are willing to go that deep into the jungle right. or forest to, and so it's such a commitment to go in the time, the resources, uh, uh, the professionals needed to do mm-hmm. that. And so, yeah, if you could have more supplements, get more information, right? That's the whole mm-hmm. point to learn about how many tigers there are, are they adults, are they males, females? Uh, and so if, if you're going to trek that far into the woods and jungles, if you can get more information out of it, I, I would think the better, right? Absolutely. And resources and time. Absolutely. So that's also why we're looking at moving to like these audio moth systems. Um, audio moths, uh, they can uh, function for like much, much longer periods of time than what your standard camera trap can. So the Mm -hmm. thought is too, is that they won't have to be checked on as often. So, and then there's some great work that we're using um, to kind of model ourselves off of as well um, out of South America where someone is using audio moths and um, using old recycled cell phones that are still functioning. Just somebody doesn't want anymore. And he set up a system where he can connect the audio moth to a cell phone and it sends data as it's recorded. It recognizes when like a call is recorded and sends it to a cloud. And so he can see his data as it's regularly coming up, but he doesn't have to go out and check on it until he just needs to go replace the batteries. And so to keep the phone running, he has like a little solar panel on there. So they're really just these ingenious systems and using the audio moths a recycled cell phone and a little panel, it's costing him just a couple hundred dollars to set up each one, which is also just, that's been a huge hurdle for us because a lot of times these audio systems and like just, just talking about the recording systems we need, um, you're looking at like $5,000 for one setup. Well, if you're doing a grid of them across several miles through an entire park, I mean, that's, that can add up really, really quickly. So these cool new uh, systems that are being created that can be put together for a few hundred dollars, it just shows like how researchers and scientists just will not quit and they will do whatever to get the research they need to conserve the animals they care about. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And my dad used to always say, uh, necessity is the mother of all invention. So, oh yeah. <laughs> any of you smart or engineering type people out there listening, or if you know somebody who it is, who is, you know, share this podcast episode, reach out uh, to the Proustian project because you don't necessarily have to be a field researcher or a biologist or a zookeeper or a zoo director or a nonprofit director to make an impact for species conservation. Uh, I always say we need, we need more artists educators, engineers, geneticists, things like that. People that have different talents that can think outside the box and come up with such an amazing invention, such as uh, the cell phone and the cloud and all of that to help wildlife. And so it's just about, I think, putting the right people together. And so a lot, I always encourage people, don't throw your hands up just because you're not going to be a zookeeper or you don't work out in the field. You can 
help in many, many different ways. Right. So oh, absolutely. Um, I think something that's really fun with this project and just as I've um, communicated with different researchers is like this setup that I'm talking about. A professor who's doing research in South America is using the setup, but it was one ultimately created by one of his students. We've had um, students reach out to us before who are very techie trying to help us set up a like an AI system that could help us go through all of our data. I mean, we currently use um, a wonderful set of volunteers. Um, you don't have to be trained at all to help us. We will give you whatever you would like. But if you want to get involved with Tiger Conservation, they go through our recordings for us using a system called Raven Pro, and they're pulling our calls out for us each Tiger vocalization. And that takes a lot of time and energy and um, a really great volunteer base in order to go through those. So, and very rarely are those volunteers even zookeepers or just people who are passionate about tiger conservation. So if anything has really stood out to me during like my experience with the Prussian project and just uh, going through school and getting involved with these different biology product projects, it's just that if you're passionate about animals and conservation and trying to see what we can do to save this earth, like there are definitely pathways you can go down to help support different conservation projects without having to have a degree to back it. Right. Or even necessarily going into the field. I mean, right. Obviously that'd be super fun. Uh, have, <laughs> have you been able to travel uh, to Asia? Um, Courtney has, um, mm -hmm. she was able to set up, uh, she's been able to go visit uh, Conopinch national park several times and work with some of their uh, researchers there um, because we are, funded by personal donations largely. Um, we really have to be smart about where we're putting our money and we put all of it towards the conservation. So <laughs> right. if there is a single, like if we need to take a trip um, over there to one of our, like a field site we're trying to establish, we just will send one person or we'll just do Skype meetings um, sure. or Google Hangouts or we just try to facilitate things from a distance as well. Um, we really want the involvement of local people in our field research sites. So we are really looking at having students work with us who are currently going through their own programs, as well as we're looking at ways to really involve communities to get, like get, we're looking for ways to, get communities involved with our project as well. If you look at really successful conservation organizations such as World Wildlife Fund or Wildlife SOS, they the reason they're so successful is they're communicating with those local groups. They're working with the communities that these animals share and looking for solutions to reduce human-animal conflict, which is ultimately what we're also trying to do. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. It's, there's definitely been a lot of scientific studies about the best way to promote conservation is to get the locals involved in caring about the project. And then it becomes a lot more sustainable. They have a lot more investment in saving the animals that are in the, in the reserves or the parks uh, surrounding mm -hmm. it. So it's a, it's a, and a really important component, I think, of being successful in, in your endeavors. So kudos Absolutely. to you guys right, right on though. Well, thank that, that's you. Awesome. And now I'm going to, I'm going to give a plug for you as far as these <laughs> volunteers go. Uh, you mentioned that anybody can volunteer to help, uh, to help sort through some of the data and, and help you guys out with that. And I think if you watch the Tiger King and you were appalled, you should contact the Fruiston Project uh, and and donate seven hours of your time to uh, <laughs> to kind of undo the seeing of that uh, or or just in general, like you mentioned, if you love animals and want to help out, but you obviously can't go over to Asia or I uh, you know don't have a background in in zookeeping. There's lots of ways to help with citizen science. And uh, the Prusen Project is a good example of that. 
But besides that plug for you, uh, <laughs> what are some <laughs> other ways that the public can get involved to help save tigers and then also uh, help volunteer for you? Absolutely. So uh, to help save tigers, um, there is a wide birth of things you can do. Um, so one is when you're researching what facilities you would like to visit, most facilities will have on their website what organizations they support. So look for organization or look for zoos um, who are supporting uh, in the field conservation efforts for tigers. So look for zoos that list us as someone who they support, look for zoos that support uh, global conservation force, that support World Wildlife Fund. Look for facilities that are supporting conservation efforts that mean something to you. As far as just on your day-to-day, just be a con- conscious consumer. So when you're out shopping, know where what you're buying is coming from. Um, know what is what that product is made with. So for example, um, right now a huge threat to tigers is, um, deforestation. So what is driving that deforestation? Look for, um, like palm oil, uh, which is a huge, a huge push for that deforestation. So look for palm oil in your products. And that doesn't mean if it says palm oil on the back of it, you absolutely can't buy it. But look for that little sustainable palm oil symbol, which will be on those products that use palm oil that was uh, harvested in a sustainable way. So there's lots of little things that you can do to make sure you are doing what you can to help our natural world just in your day-to-day life. Our website is www.thepristianproject.org, um, and Prustian is spelled P-R-U-S-T-E-N, and Prustian is actually the German word for chuff, in case you were wondering why we chose such a fun word <laughs> to put I, in I our name. I think pronouncing or... it wrong, the whole podcast, but... <laughs> well, we tried to trip everyone up, so... <laughs> good, good. Um, well, that's how you become memorable, right? Yeah, it'll be yeah exactly. <laughs> Everybody has to repeat it 10 times in their head. And so that'll make it sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. you can come reach out to us there. There you can find the updates on what we're doing, um, how we're getting involved with conservation, what our updates are, as well as you can find out how to volunteer. And um, our education department does do um, outreach programs as well. Um, so if you are a teacher right now who is trying to figure out how to end your year all online, feel free to reach out to us. We do um, do presentations with preschool through college level, and we can talk to you about our project, um, what our current, what the current tiger situation is in the wild, as well as in captivity, and just give your kids someone to talk to if they want to talk to some ecologists up close. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'm going to have you guys on for sure next semester. That's awesome. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) And so you've had a a pretty big career of doing animal husbandry, doing research, uh, conservation. So what is some of your advice about getting into the field in any of those fields if you do have interest? What would you tell a young person? Or an old person too, right? We can, can, <laughs> people can change careers. Um, to anybody, just reach out to these um, researchers. So visit their website, see how to get involved. Like with us, we do have a portion on there. But also if you are someone who was reading a study, for example, if you saw a study that just piqued your interest, if you reach out to those authors, I guarantee you they would love to talk to you about their research. Um, just ask to get involved. Um, when I was in college, I was involved with a herp to funnel count that, which is you go, basically you just go out and you flip over rocks and try to find as many amphibians and reptiles as you can <laughs> and record where it. you found them. Yeah. And that was like a 30 year study that I got involved with by asking if I could get involved with it. I just heard somebody else was doing it. This exact same scenario with how I got involved with, um, reintroduction of black-footed ferrets it was i yes, found somebody who's doing yes. it heck yeah and mm-hmm. i i just asked if i could be involved so there is no harm in asking 
we always need people who are willing to go out and actually get hands on with conservation. So just be knowledgeable about animals that you want to get involved with. Um, you don't have to be the expert by any means, but just know about the animals you want to get involved with and reach out to researchers who are currently doing conservation work. And I bet you some good things will happen. Yes, Emily, the ask is the big part. That's just, just got to get past those nerves and send that email or reach out to somebody in on Facebook or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And so, uh, for instance, you have a Facebook page. We do. We have a Facebook and Twitter. Um, and then we also have an Instagram, which we're not quite as active on by far. If you want to get in contact with us, the best place to find us is our website or Facebook. Awesome. Yes, for sure. And I have one last really important question. (laughs) Of course. Can you give our listeners a tiger chuff? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. So this gives me the chance to redeem myself from a radio interview I did a couple years ago. Um, so let's, let's do this. All right. (sighs) (sighs) (laughs) Perfect. You win. I oh think my you gosh. beat my husband hands down. That was amazing, Emily. That's what we're going to sign out on because you can take that chuff to the bank, my friend. That was amazing. <laughs> well, perfect. That was amazing. Perfect. So, Oh, Emily, it's been so fun getting to know you and learning all about the Proustian or the Chuff Project. And <laughs> I hope that our listeners will reach out to you and your organization and get more involved because it's nonprofits like yourself that start from the ground up because of passion and interest and love. And then they grow into these amazing entities that give back. They start at at these local accredited zoos and then they're able to give back to animals in the wild. And I think that that's a lot of people underestimate or don't really realize how much research goes on in accredited uh, zoos and aquariums that really contributes to our knowledge base that, that then contributes to saving species in the wild. And this is just such a great example of, of how that can be done and that you guys are out there working long hours, blood, sweat, and tears to save tigers in the wild. So Thank you so much. And I, I look forward to hearing more of your data about how all different tigers have a different voice. And I'm just so glad that you're a conservation hero fighting for them. So thank you, Emily. Well, thank you so much, Angie. I really love what you guys are doing here. This is such a cool podcast that is just highlighting so many amazing causes. And uh, thank you so much for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye.